Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Party Pod is brought to you by the book Ending Addiction for Good, which is by Cliffside Treatment Center founder and CEO Richard Tate and Dr. Constance Scharf, Cliffside's addiction researcher. Through self-disclosure, case studies, scientific facts, and firsthand experience, Tate and Scharf explain how anyone can recover from addiction. I'm a big fan of the book. It's I'm not the only one. It's received rave reviews, and it also made it into the VMA's gift bag, and you just know those people need to hear this message. You can get the book by going to Amazon, or you can go to Cliffside's website, which is cliffsidemalibu.com. Get the book. Get it now. I recommend it. Hey, guys. It's Anna David, host of After Party Pod which you know, because you just downloaded it. Yep. Mm -hmm. I am extremely honored and excited about today's guest. Um, If you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you probably know about this guy. His name is Paul Gilmartin, and he has been a very successful comedian for many years. He hosted TBS's Dinner and a Movie for more than 16 years. Um... That's a long time to have a job, let alone a job in television. And he has been on MTV, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, Politically Incorrect. He's had a Comedy Central special. He's done that whole deal. But the reason we are talking to him today is that in 2001, he created a podcast called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. And it is one of the most riveting things I've ever listened to. It's definitely the most interesting podcast I know of. And as I told him in our interview, I don't believe this very podcast you're listening to right now would exist were it not for the Mental Illness Happy Hour, because I don't think I realized that a podcast could talk about serious issues and also be entertaining sometimes and and feature comedians um, and that kind of thing. But but he, uh, this is an immensely popular podcast he hosts. It's had millions of downloads. It's had as guests people like Doug Benson and Paul F. Tompkins and Adam Carolla, and also previous After Party pod guests like Greg Barrett and uh, Jimmy Pardo. And that podcast is not afraid to go there. Uh, they uh, talk, they do talk about um, addiction is a common topic. Um, he also gets his guests talking about mental illness, uh, depression, um, and abuse. And 
He has surveys that appear on mentalpod.com where people can anonymously fill out surveys where they can uh, talk about shame, they can talk about happy moments. It's not all just the disturbing stuff. And um, he will always read the results of surveys and it's fascinating the things that, um, that have happened to, the painful things that have happened to people and the way they've compartmentalized them. And I think oftentimes that's what I get the most out of um, when he reads the surveys is seeing, I mean, hearing about how people have, what they've done with the disturbing things that have happened to them. And, and you know, Paul seems to very much be of the mindset that talking about these things heals us, which is what I very much believe. And... Um, Paul is also sober, by the way. Did I mention that already? So, and so anyway, in our conversation, first of all, he completely hooked me up with his sound system. So you are listening to this on my, you know, shitty sound system. And you're about to just, your ears are in for just like the most amazing treat because it's going to sound so good because we use his sound system. So he not only did that, but he also really opened up and we had... I mean, a far, I'm just going to say it, more interesting conversation than, than I've had with any of the guests so far. And he kind of did a little table turning on me. He's good at that. Um, so that I talked about, you know, my relationship with my non-relationship with my dad and uh, my own experiences. So I hope you guys will like this one. I'm pretty positive you guys will like this one. Please let me know. Um... You can you can support the show by uh, giving positive reviews on iTunes or commenting or I mean you don't have to do that even people who just email me or tell me in person I've gotten some texts too people who like the show and it, it means so much to hear that and th- what else do I want to tell you I mean that theme song you know that theme song you know it's written by Seth Rothschild and performed by the Patients we love it. Thank you guys for listening to this, and um, please enjoy Paul Gilmartin. Oh, uh, we're rolling. Here we are. Um, so now that you have completely set me up for this program, are you, I almost want you to interview yourself. That's how much you've just set, done everything for me. This is so. I mean, if only everybody could invite me into their home, offer me a beverage, have dogs come over and kiss me, and then set up my entire podcasting system. I take a lot of pride in having good audio quality. And when I see people struggling right. to get good audio quality, because yeah. it's really so simple once you know the basics of it. The word simple, it really does depend on how you define the word simple. Because Six months would, from now, you you'll, really, you'll be, be going, I'll how be did the, I not? I'll be the how, one do, yes. teaching people this. Yes. Uh, you do, basically, the last five minutes, for anyone who is not here, which is to say everyone who is listening... It was like, you just put this in, then you plug this into that, and then it's just so easy. You go like that. I mean, I have no idea what just happened, but I know it sounds damn good in these like, the earphones. Good, oh, yes. good. So it's such a pleasure to sit here with you. Um, as I told you, I, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, um, thanks. And think, you know, it, it's a huge inspiration to what I'm doing per- with the website that I started, but particularly with this podcast, I don't know that this would exist if yours didn't because... I don't think it was, I didn't think it was possible to sort of address these issues from a non-clinical point of view and 
and sometimes actually be lighthearted. And uh, it, it sometimes be what lighthearted. Oh yes, that's that yeah. thing when people smile. <laughs> yeah. I did for some reason. I, I just heard "hearted" and I was like, "Oh, is that a?" Is that's it? a thing. Yes. It's a term. Yeah, that I just coined. Um, but also to to make it, uh, for lack of a better word, I guess entertaining. Thank you. I mean, that's those are like the the things that I set out to accomplish with it. So it's incredibly satisfying to hear somebody. Um, Confirm yes. that that I'm, well, I'm accomplishing. Not the first. I'm, yeah. I, I know that, um, and yes, I was. So I found I found you because I did a story on Mark Marin a few years ago, and somebody emailed me and said, "If you like Mark Marin, you're going to love Paul Gilmartin." Um, I started listening to the podcast, and I had this idea in my head that you would that that, that you kind of didn't do press, that you were sort of ungettable. Yes, what? I, yeah, I don't know. I am an alcoholic, which is to say, in this particular case, that I take a little bit of information, I write a massive story, I believe it wholeheartedly. Oftentimes, getting depressed in the process, um, and but in this, I wouldn't. I didn't go through a major depression. I was just like, oh, okay, so you know, I, I can sort of listen to this guy and get to know him from afar. I just somehow it was in my head that this would not be possible dreams do come true in hollywood <laughs> um and but and so i guess what happened is i started doing this podcast and i realized that i was interviewing uh, people that i had l- really enjoyed hearing on your podcast people like greg barrett and jimmy pardo and um and i and allison rosen is an old friend of mine oh i love allison yeah and so i just said what the hell I'm going to reach out and look where we sit. And you were, and you were very kind and um, responded positively. Well, I'm kind of uh, flattered and um, surprised anytime anybody um, wants to interview me and recognizes what I'm doing. I think because I felt invisible so much of, of, of my life, um, not around friends, but just in terms of like to strangers – um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. There's an awesome article by uh, Dr. Alan Rappaport that I just did a little mini episode on, where I actually just read this article he wrote about co-narcissism when you grow up with a narcissistic yep. narcissistic parent. And one of the things is you have no sense of what you're feeling, what your opinions are. You just live through other people's opinion of you, mm. so you don't really have a sense of self because your childhood was spent feeding your parents needs and they loved you as long as you were behaving how they wanted you to behave because they viewed you as an extension of themselves not as a separate person with their own thoughts and needs and desires etc and it's it was mind-blowing to me when I read it because it explained so much about me and about my mom and it actually allowed me to have more compassion for both of us Mm. Um, but it, it struck home that um, reconfirmed that sickness that I have in me, which is um, a struggling to find a sense of self. It gets better as time goes on. Certainly has gotten much better since I got sober, but it's something I still struggle with. Um, I'm convinced that everybody, and this is one of the things he says in his article, is you're convinced that everybody else is narcissistic, the way your parent is. So I assume that everybody is waiting to pounce on a mistake mm. that I make. Okay. You said 16 things that I want to respond to. One is fascinating about co-narcissism. I've never heard that term before. 
Um, and especially if you couple it with alcoholism, because I sort of think of, you know, you get sober and, and literally people say to me, would say to me, you know, what's your favorite color? And I, I, I would have absolutely no way of answering that question, let alone everything else about my life. And so much of that had to do with the fact that I was drowning out my system and that, and that I didn't really have an identity beyond this girl who partied, but so much of it had to do with the fact that there was no room in my family for your, your opinions, your anything. And, um, I, I, I just think that, 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 so the combination means that you're going to get sober and have no fucking idea who you are or what you like. Right. And the other thing that the article said, which was a little hard to accept, but I know it's the truth, is there's the co-narcissist is often also a narcissist. And I know that's true about me because some of the things they were describing about the narcissist um, was like, oh, that's uncomfortable to read. But I, I definitely have those qualities. And the other thing that they said was that the the narcissist is generally a little less narcissistic than their parents. So it does get better over time, especially if that co-narcissist seeks help. Okay. Interesting. Again, 16 jumping off points from what you said. And my brain has only the ability to probably remember one, but, but okay. So what has always come up in therapy, whenever I've sort of explored that I'm a narcissist territory, what has come back to me is, well, actually narcissists don't worry about being narcissistic. It's one of the elements of narcissism. Trust me. My dad has never gone into his therapist and, and tried to analyze whether or not he's narcissistic. Um, but the other thing, oh, and here's where my feeble brain gets put to its test, um, that, that, oh yeah, yeah. Were you accused of being narcissistic oh, yeah. by, your, by your parents? Oh yeah. And uh, not by my dad. My dad just wasn't, he was trapped in his own head at the end of the couch. Right. Um, no, yeah. My mom would project stuff onto me. Um, she would call me selfish. She would, um, call me a martyr, all, all the things that that she was, you know, which isn't to say that I wasn't ever that way, but it was, I believed her. I really grew up believing that I was a selfish person who had to do certain things to be lovable. Um, and what about your family and your podcast? Um, they don't listen to it that, that I'm aware of. I've asked my mom, I haven't talked to her in a year and a half, but, um, when I first started doing it, I told her about it, but I said, I'd rather you don't listen to Mm -hmm. it. Um, at this point, if she sought it out on her own and listened to it, um, I would be okay with it because I'm kind of done apologizing for her possibly being embarrassed. Mm. Um, I know I've probably thrown her under the bus, um, by making some backhanded jokes a couple of times in the podcast, but um, I kind of feel like parents need to earn their children's respect. Mm. That it's I don't buy that you've got to respect them just because you came out of them, you know. Um, so I relate. Yeah. Did that did not respecting your parents give you issues with authority figures? Yes and no, because I did respect my parents. Because um, you didn't know up. there was a choice. I didn't know there was a choice, and it and it's not that I was afraid of disrespecting them. They didn't they didn't instill any type of fear. They weren't um, uh, violent. They weren't um, physically punishing. They didn't really raise their voices. 
Um, but it was the path of least resistance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to just go along with things. And you grow up when you're feeding that, that parent's needs, you grow up not knowing what you're feeling. You, and especially when kind of creepy stuff has been done to you, you learn to blame yourself and then not trust your body and then not live in your body, especially when, when you have a parent that talks constantly but doesn't really say anything, you learn to tune out. So all of those things, you you kind of become dissociated from mm-hmm. your body and your feelings. So you you don't really know what it is that you're feeling. So you become addicted to fantasy. But were you angry at them? I was, I wasn't at them until I got into therapy. And then I was just outraged. And the decision not to speak to your mom, how, how did that happen? Um, I had a breakdown about a year and a half ago. I was getting ready to go home to Chicago where she lives to help her move from her condo to a retirement home. And it and to celebrate her eighty fourth birthday, I think it was her eighty third birthday, and it had been accumulating over a period of time. Um, one of my support groups uh, helps people who are struggling with intimacy mm-hmm. and respecting their own feelings, being in their body, and many of us are um, survivors of various types of abandonment or abuse, Mm -hmm. particularly sexual abuse. I didn't think I had been sexually abused, and I still struggle to use that word because it feels a little overly dramatic. But one of the things I learned in that support group was to begin to listen to my body and to not assume that whatever I'm feeling or thinking is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And it started one Christmas she was my mom sends me th- these packages around christmas time of shit that i'm not interested in things i've asked her not to send me stuff she bought for other people just it, f- it just feels like stuff you would put on the curb wrapped uh some wrapped some okay. not and 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 i would always dread opening it because it was just a reminder that i don't feel seen or heard and and I decided to not just assume I'm a bad son and say, why does this give me a knot in my stomach? And I realized I don't feel seen. This right. thing is just like a big, you are who I want you to be. I want to change you. And that was the beginning of me opening the door to the possibility that her idea of what love is I don't experience as love right because I know she's trying to love me as best she can but I needed to finally respect what it was that I was feeling and it was dread and a thousand other negative feelings right and I began to, as I talked to her on the phone, she would infantilize me. She would talk about me as if I was an object, mom's cutest, mom's this. It was always this kind of possessive thing. You know, one of the things that I first learned in therapy in my mid-20s was um, that it was inappropriate for her to be 
pinching my ass and telling me how cute I was. Mm -hmm. I'd always let her do it because it was her need and I wanted to make her happy because she was a deeply unhappy person who would confide in me how miserable she was in her marriage, how she wanted to leave all of us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the, the therapist said, how does it make you feel? Do you like it? And I said, no. And she said, well, then why do you let her do it? And I said, because it's makes her happy. And she's like, but what about your feelings? And I had never thought about how it made me feel. And she said, would it be an would it be appropriate for a man to be doing that to his daughter? And I said, no. She said, well, then why is it appropriate for that? And this fucking rage came up in me. And that was the first time I realized that I was kind of being sexualized and objectified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought I was done with it. My wife had always told me, I don't think you've really processed this. And I would just think, ah, you don't really like my mom. That's you just wanting to feed that hatred that you have about my mom. Um, So I began to listen to how she talked to me on the phone. And I began to realize if my child had told me 24 years ago, please don't grab my ass. Please don't talk to me like I'm your date. I would make sure if I was really listening to my child, I would make sure I didn't. So then we just start, we we got yeah. cut off there. Um, if my child had told me 24 years right. ago that please don't do these things. You would not need to be told again. I would not need to be told again. And that was like hugely painful because, mm. so I coupled that with the Christmas box, the feeling objectified, and the memories that I had never really given weight to, creepy things that she had done. She didn't touch my genitals, but they, there was a sexual mm-hmm. charge in the air. There was an inappropriateness to it. I was naked for many of them. I suddenly went, oh, my God. I, I don't know how to describe it, but it was the most pain I've ever felt in my life. And I went to my wife. And I said, I need a hug. I'd always had this fantasy when I was a kid that that I could go to an older girl on the playground and she would wrap me in her arms and I'd be able to cry. Mm-hmm. And when I got into therapy, I was like, oh, clearly I wasn't mothered. Right. That's what it was about. But I didn't know what it was that I wanted to say right. to that older girl. When I went to hug my wife, the words came out of my mouth. And I realized it had been what I'd wanted to say all my life. And I said to my to my wife, she tricked me. She used me. And I was a good kid, and I didn't deserve it. And I just started sobbing. Mm-hmm. And my wife said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to say that. And it felt so good to have my feelings validated. And it was so painful, but it was so life-changing because I finally saw... Whether or not it's the truth, it's my truth. Right. It's my. It's what I was feeling. It's what I'd been burying because I had told myself. Because when one of the creepy things happened, I became aroused. Right. And I had always told myself that I was dirty. Right. That I, I was. felt a lot of shame. A lot of shame. Yeah. And I thought I was just weird and perverted. Mm-hmm. And I was finally able to put the responsibility where it belonged. And 
I couldn't the thought of being in the same room with her was horrifying. And so I called and left her a message when I knew she wasn't going to be home. I apologize for, for my dogs. Do you want me to put them in the back bedroom? Um, I don't mind it. I, it okay. Th- there's, they've started hey. to make different noises now. Yeah, he's trying to hump her. He does that when uh, he, it's he's not, trying to show how powerful he is. He, he's, he's, it's inappropriate pairing. It's probably appropriate for the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so did you tell your mom why? I didn't. I I did in a general way because one of the things about her that I know is that she she doesn't usually own up to her right. side of things right. unless it fits into a narrow window of what she can accept. Right. And I also knew there's a possibility that she wasn't even really conscious of what it was that she was doing. Right. So I just left a message and said, "I don't hate you." I'm not mad at you. I'm just exhausted by a relationship and I need a break. And she called back and left a message and said, I understand. That's amazing. Yeah. I find that part amazing. Yeah. And, you know, she has been in a support group um, for 30 years. Never done the work. <laughs> right. Um, but I think she can occasionally detach. And so I decided to start up a correspondence by mail because I thought I can handle that but even you know like her second and third letter started to get manipulative and just made me really sad and I thought I got to protect myself right I'm going to put them in the back yeah, bedroom yeah I guess it got a little it got a little a little much guys come on let's go let's go that's fine okay hi we're back the inappropriate dogs have been yeah. quarantined um, so I have stopped writing letters. In fact, I just got one five minutes before you came and, nice. I, and I wasn't going to open it. And I thought, well, maybe it'll be something to talk about yeah, on the stir podcast, up some stuff. but there wasn't any kind of, there was just, I think about you every day right. and, um, there wasn't any guilting in it. Um, but I'm trying to respect what I'm feeling, which is that I don't want to have contact with her. I haven't written her off right. for the rest of my life. I, you know, I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to kind of take it as it goes and just respect what it is that I'm feeling because I've learned in one of my support groups that one of the reasons why I engage in addictive behavior sometimes is because I want to escape what it is that right. I'm feeling because I'm not trusting what I'm feeling in my body. Right. Right. Do you, if she said to you, I have been thinking, she wrote, I've been thinking about it and um, I now realize what I've done and it, what, what kind of a difference would that make? I would, I would look around to make sure that I wasn't in hell (laughs) and it wasn't (laughs) sub-zero. It's not likely. Not, uh, no, not likely. If she did, I would be so thrilled and I would call her immediately. And I would say thank you for for that. Um, I would like to try to have a relationship with boundaries. Right. I might at some point even do that whether or not right. she does that because I know that she's sick. She had a right. terribly abandoning childhood. Uh, but one of the things that I've realized is I can have compassion for others but not at the expense of compassion for myself. Right. right. And 
at this point, that's what it, I would be doing. Right. Which is what you had to do your entire childhood without being conscious. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So I just, I just told you while, while the mics were off that I have a very similar story. And broadly, it's, it's just that my dad has always been inappropriate to me from a very young age. Nothing. I mean, he never touched me, but everything he said, his obsession with taking my picture, the ways he compared me to my mother, it was a constant, constant um, onslaught of this. And in front of everybody, everybody saw it. And I first realized it when I was in college. And for many, many years, I ha- I continued to have a relationship with him. I'm, su- I'm a super confrontational person. So I-, I immediately called them up after therapy, both of them. And I said, this happened and you guys saw. And-, and-, and they did not respond well without going into many details. And... Um, and at a certain, and I just continue to can have, you, can you, I, I would like to know the details of oh, how they responded. Oh, you know, I mean, the thing is I, my, my, my mom is, um, my mom and I are incredibly close and I love her very much with my dad. Quite frankly, I not only don't love him, I don't, I don't like him, you know, and it has actually very little to do as far as I know with, with all of the inappropriate stuff. But, um, but um, usually that's just an extension of who they are. As a as I, a person, I, you know, I shouldn't throw him entirely under the bus. He's not a very appealing guy on any. Throw him under level. a scooter. <laughs> um, but but so I would say he just doesn't he doesn't hear anything. You know, I mean, I would have conversations with him, and I would set certain boundaries, and he would nod, and then he would five minutes later not you know respect that boundary and pretend we'd never talked about it um so i mean that that was sort of to be expected you know my mom i think really struggled with with how to handle it and and um my dad uh went they still together this is so insane they 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 got divorced they should never have been married they got divorced my mom was very happily married for 18 years to the most wonderful amazing guy who was much older than she was and he died a few years ago and um yeah you know what and i don't want to disrespect her and and go into too much but but they, they are very close they are not together together but they are very close and um my dad went to uh the national false memory foundation or something this this place where parents who are accused of abuse go, uh, and and it was I was sort of, would sort of say you know that doesn't make a lot of sense given that we all saw this we all admit so there's nothing false going on and I guess he would go and he would find other people and they would sit there and talk about like how their kids made stuff up and um and and, and at a certain point I realized that um I there was no way for me to have a relationship with my dad that was not re-traumatizing. I tried. I mean, I really was like the dude could die and I, and I could feel terrible and, and this will be unresolved. And I have tried and, and I really have tried as much as a human being can try. And, and, and there does not seem to be a way for me to interact with him in a way. Cause now I write about this. I've written about it in a few books. And so they, my parents don't read it, don't really do follow anything I do. And, um, and my dad apparently decided to read one of these very short books. He could <laughs> handle that. And so the last time I saw him, he decided to confront me about what I'd written, which is very complicated considering the fact that he won't admit that it's true. And there was something about the insanity of being confronted about something I'd written which about him, which he will not admit is true, that I was like, I cannot be around this guy. I, I, it is not okay. I, I am really sacrificing myself 
for him. And, um, and, and, and he sort of, I, I think he accepts that. I don't think he, he I, who knows what he cares about it. He doesn't pursue it. Um, and so, so yeah, it's pretty sad. Um, what would he say to you when he would be taking these pictures and things of you? Oh, his whole thing with me is just, uh, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. You're so much more beautiful than your mother. I mean, from the time That's I was so like gross. five, six, seven. Yeah. And by the way, my mom showered way more physical affection on me. I never saw her be physically affectionate to my father. Also never saw him be physically affectionate to her. Right. And so you grow up with this weird sense of icky, but also kind of powerful. Well, definitely. And, um, and I definitely, uh, used that to my advantage and my detriment many, many times. I mean, my first few jobs, I always would be the boss's favorite and we would have this like slightly inappropriate relationship where I kind of completely manipulated him and, um, and thought I could get away with murder, even though he was the one in charge and it worked and it worked and worked and worked until it started to backfire and get me fired. And I realized I couldn't. I, I almost can't work for men. I mean, I almost can't work for anybody, let's be honest. I work much better for myself. Um, but yeah, it is um it is something that, that is there that um that um you know, not a lot of people are comfortable talking about. Um and yet I think with you or about themselves. In general, you know, I mean, about whether or not that kind of thing happened in their own family. I mean, I do think that dysfunctional families, oftentimes the mother will make the son into the surrogate husband and the father will make the daughter into the surrogate girlfriend or, or whatever it is because the parents aren't having a relationship. And... And I'm not saying everybody needs to go and examine whether or not that took place, but I think it's more common than, than is discussed. I think it's one of the most common things yeah. in the world. Yeah. So many of the people in my support group, that's exactly what happened to them. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that some people like it, you know, and it doesn't go into creep. And I actually do think there's a huge difference. I mean, this may sound really overly simplistic, but like, ugh, sorry, I'm having a headphone drop. <laughs> You know, I think if you are very fond of your parent, your opposite gender parent, and they do that, you have a much different relationship with it, you know, where you're, you know, daddy's little girl and you love, you know, I just always was like, my dad is such an unappealing dude. I didn't want his attention. Um, And the whole sort of Freudian notion and, and the Oedipal complex and the Electra complex, when the parent is superseding what should be happening so that the little girl who's supposed to be fantasizing about killing her mother so she can marry her father, when the father's already like acting like she's the wife, you know, you can't actually have that. I believe in, in sort of in, in those developmental stages. How has it affected your sexuality Uh, and your chance to be truly intimate, emotionally intimate with Okay, partner. A, this is my podcast, not yours. (laughs) (laughs) I'll share about mine. We should we yeah. really just to keep it. I mean, it's okay. I, we're happy to talk, but let's do you first, at least. It it has made it for for many years. I could only be attracted to somebody who um, wasn't crazy about me. Mm. If they were crazy about mm. me, it freaked me out. Yeah. Um, probably one of the reasons I picked my wife is she's kind of an emotionally. Um, uh, uh, not very expressive person. She expresses it through 
cooking for me, thinking about my practical needs, being intimate occasionally, but the first, furthest thing from smothering or right. or needy. Um, and we connected on kind of an emotional level. We both love dogs. Mm-hmm. And that was a safe way for me to experience that. But now I'm finding myself wanting more intimacy. And we're, we're struggling with that because there are things that you kind of um, don't address when you know, I'm speaking for myself, when you don't crave intimacy and then suddenly you want intimacy. Um, but it, it affected my sex became about control, um, Hmm. for me. And, um, you know, in my early years about conquest and yeah, that's kind of, yeah, sorry. One of the things that reminds me that it's not my fault for my sexuality being the way it is um, and having difficulty connecting my heart to my genitals is when the memories, when I gave weight to the memories about things that my mom did that felt creepy and sexual to me, particularly the one where I became aroused, I'd never had this fantasy before, but after I gave weight to it, suddenly I had fantasies about not my mom, but a woman who had all the qualities that I wanted my mom to have. I fantasized about myself going back to that age, being Mm -hmm. 11 again, and getting an inappropriate (laughs) bath from an older woman, an older girl, or a mom doing that to me, but it going all the way in terms of like her bringing me to an orgasm, but not in a way where she is outwardly sexually turned on. She is still doing it as if she's being maternal, sort of being maternal, sort of. And then the fantasy after the young me would have a dry orgasm is that then she would wrap me in a towel and I would cry and she would comfort Mm. me. And I'd never had that fantasy before. And suddenly this became the most powerful fantasy in the world to me. And it reconfirmed in me that our sexuality is so often imprinted by trauma that has happened to us. And it was reconfirmed by the thousands of surveys I've read um, that people fill out on the website where they share their deepest shame and secrets. And so many of them, their sexual fantasies are so obviously tied to the trauma that happened where they're trying to go back and relive what happened to them, but have some sense of control in it. And that was greatly relieving to me because Mm. I was able to let go of the shame that I felt uh, about what happened to me and becoming aroused in that, in that one instance, by the way, my first instinct when she wanted to give me that inappropriate bath was, Ooh, 
Right. Interesting. I want to put bo- it. It's like your body betrayed you. It did. And, and so I've lived the first 48 years of my life not trusting my body and thinking my body is betraying me because I'm inherently dirty. Right, right. I was going to say about your surveys, what's, what, when you read them, what's so interesting, when you read them aloud, I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's, it seems that there is so, so much of um, something, ha- whatever that option is, something happened, but I'm not sure if it was sexual abuse. Yeah. And, and, it, and because you're reading the whole thing right there, it, it, it's, it's so easy to connect the dots, you know? And, and as the listener, you connect the dots in a way that the person who wrote it did not. And it's a fascinating Exercise. It's so much easier to have empathy for other people's trauma than it is your own. And my therapist said, it's because you avoided as a child that frightening truth, which is, is you are in the hands of somebody who is exploiting or predatory towards right. your body. Right. And I remember brushing those thoughts out of my mind. I remember, I feel, I'm feeling kind of shame right now because I talk, I feel like I'm a broken record when I do podcasts, but this is my story and this right. is the stuff that's really important to me. She took my temperature rectally until I was eight years old. And I remember thinking to myself, this doesn't feel right. I remember asking right. her, why can't I put it in right. in my mouth? Why? And she said, well, I'm afraid you're going to bite down on it and break the thermometer. And I just remember, and her whole demeanor would change when she would mm. do it. And then she would disappear with the thermometer for a long time afterwards. And I just remember thinking... This, is she getting something out of this and then brushing that thought away right. because I would say moms wouldn't do that. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I gave weight to when I put all the pieces together. In my support right. group, one of the things you learn to do to, to learn about yourself is to look at your patterns of behavior instead of the isolated incidents. And that's how I made the breakthrough was I looked at her patterns and I put them all together because each individual one, you could explain away. Right, right, right. And that's, I think how, and I think that's how people who have a slightly predatory nature or a fully predatory nature is that they become master manipulators at disguising what it is that they're doing. Right, right. Either to themselves or consciously towards that person they're abusing. What do you think about the chances of them repeating things that had happened to them? A hundred percent. Yeah. I don't think anybody does it. Um, they just get the idea. Yeah. I, although I've, I've learned there's this great article about the different types of predators and there are, um, situational I may be botching the word situational predators and preferential predators and a preferential predator that's the thing that turns them on that they seek out to the exclusion of other things a situational predator um, may be somebody who prefers adults but in that given situation right like a jail yes that's like a jail jail gay guy yeah so that's um I, um, question off the beaten path. Do you have chronic pain issues? I did. I used to, you know, that is, there's a great connection between um, holding those emotions in and yeah, sexual trauma in particular in chronic pain, which is not very widely publicized. I I didn't know it. And I was surprised when I heard it. My best friend is a uh, interventional pain specialist and he says he sees so many clients, um, patients, mostly women, 
who have this unspecified pain and he tries sometimes to go to the place of asking about their childhood or suggesting that they get into therapy that there might be right some type of trauma in their past and he says most of them just shut it down like a bank vault because that's, it's too scary to yeah, go to that place that's so i mean I, I come from a community uh you know jew from marin county like therapy was like that's what you just did uh, you know my nephew's been in therapy for years and he's turning five literally really? not even kidding yeah um, I, I went at 16 and I've been in it pretty much steadily ever since. Um, but you did not go. So basically your path in terms of awareness, uh, sobriety predated therapy or the other way around a portion of therapy, a year and a half of therapy predated actually probably a total of about three years predated sobriety. Did you have one of those therapists who said, I can't continue to see you unless you clean up your act? Yeah. I always hear about those. He I was a psychiatrist one. actually. Uh huh. And, um, and I did finally say, you know, uh, I think I need to stop self-medicating, um, or I'm going to die. He didn't say it to you. Were no, you... but he said, I can't take your money. Because if... you're, was it j- just alcohol? Was it? It was alcohol and weed. Uh-huh. Those were the main, the major. And you weren't things. lying to him about it. You were telling him the truth about what you were doing. Yeah, but I was under-exaggerating, under-stating how much I was doing. But the fact that I couldn't quit, that my brain would think up a reason why tonight was going to be the last night I was going to get loaded, and tomorrow... Right. And I believed it. Right. I really believed it. But after six months of becoming more and more sad and seeing it progress and becoming more and more suicidal, I knew enough... I could understand intellectually that this is not going to a good place. And was there addiction in your family? Oh, yeah. Everybody? Uh, the the males, most of the males mm-hmm. um, in my bloodline are uh, are alcoholic. And no sobriety? Uh, very little. Mm-hmm. Very little. A few. And what was your stance on sobriety? Was that something that you were... You knew about before you did it, like you you thought it was weird. My dad had gotten sober, and I saw a change in him. You know, he didn't really put the work in. He was kind of half-assed about it. But the the times when he was into it and getting help and giving help, I could see a joy in him that I'd never seen before. How old were you? Uh, I was in my 20s. It was 90. In fact, I remember 92 Christmas, uh, December of 92. He tried to kill himself. He didn't show up for a meeting in New York and um, had tried to open his veins in a bathtub and had been committed to Bellevue. Uh You know, when you think of like the stereotype of the the nut house. That's a, probably a derogatory term for it, psychiatric hospital. But uh, it is the one. I lived in New York. I felt like I knew plenty of people who went to Bellevue yeah. was living in New York. The psychiatrist wouldn't release him unless he went directly to rehab from the airport. And so we picked him up on Christmas Eve of 1992 and took him to rehab. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one of the first inklings that my gut feeling about my parents being kind of sad, broken people was not me making it up right. in my mind. Right. But we had a couple of groups, mm-hmm. group meetings, 
where I could feel things starting to thaw mm-hmm. in him, and that kind of helped me know that, yeah, maybe this thing works. And so you you got sober and was there a period of time where you thought okay i found it i've solved the problem this is it and then you realized otherwise um i mean i've i enjoyed support groups for sobriety right out of the gate it felt like home and i had heard enough people say we're never done it's layers of an onion and so i've always kind of been seeking that that next layer but i do have periods where i think I got it going on. Right. I got it. I'm good. Um, right. I'm just going to help others. Right, right. Um, and then a layer comes up and I'm on the phone going, help me. Right. I'm so lost. I'm so angry. I'm so confused. I can't get out of bed. Right. There's a, here, I'm going to refer to my paperwork because you, there was a, well, I think this is actually from your site, the way that, um, uh, it's a quote you gave, uh, uh, my wife very gently suggested I go see somebody. Um, I came to find out that I had a drug and alcohol problem. I knew I was a heavy user, but I didn't know that I had lost the ability to quit. This is not the quote I meant to be re- reading. But it, but it was basically like you realized, like you were like, wait, I'm still an asshole, even though I'm sober. Mm-hmm. What's the problem now? And then you realized depression and mental illness was a separate issue. Yeah. Um, I realized I... There's a part of me that is self-centered and afraid that doesn't really want to reach out. And I will probably be fighting that for the rest of my life. But like anything you practice, it gets easier the more you do it, the more you pick up the phone when you don't want to talk, when you don't want to go into that icky, gray, confusing ball in your stomach. Um, So it, it does... It, it'll probably never go away, but I'm resigned to the fact that it's work I have to do if I want to have a quality of life and not go back to that place of thinking about suicide 50 times a day. And so the process of getting um, on medication, one thing I would love to hear your uh, opinion on, you know, there are people who will say one is you're not sober if you take medication. I want to punch them. Very much misunderstanding the difference between medication that is addictive, that you where you build up a tolerance and you need to take more in order to feel the same effect and and um the and medication that is to treat a pre existing condition. Go yes. go. Let your you rage just, out. You just summed it up, but I want to punch him in the fucking yeah. face and yeah. saying your opinion may Kill lead people. to somebody's suicide. Oh, it absolutely has killed people without a doubt, that 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 point of view. And they usually say it in such an arrogant right. way, but that's that's an alcoholic who's in their sickness. Right. A narcissist right. who's in their sickness is they think their opinion is the only one that matters. And I feel like that type of attitude should be reserved for those who have lived that experience, not those... Right who are judging it from the outside. Yes, and I think they are people who are confusing sobriety with uh, a medical degree. Yes. Perhaps. And they don't understand that it's just like diabetes. Right. You have chemicals that you can't produce. Right. It's not, doesn't bring you, my meds don't make me euphoric. Right. They give me a chance to be normal. Right, right. 
that um, it does, there doesn't seem to be anything that, I mean, whatever, I think we are slowly making progress in terms of educating people about that, but it is a misconception that um, I, I can't even tell you how, it, the places that I see it, there was an article in, um, not the Atlantic, God, it possibly was the Atlantic, and it, it was this very widely circulated uh, piece about this guy in sobriety talking about taking meds. And, and, and not understanding that there was a difference between, say, Klonopin and Prozac. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's so dangerous and so sad that people think that they can talk about it. Yeah, you know, there is a huge difference between Effexor and Benzos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, very I- frustrating. I saw, there was another article that fucking pissed me off so much and these research scientists at UCLA had determined that that there's no such thing as sex and love addiction oh yeah I mean that's that that definitely is a controversy that that you know I think Salon even published a piece about it Salon the most I respect that website so much um I, I think that there, I think we are in the nascent stages of awareness about a lot of these things. And I think also with the medications, you know, we are the experimental generation that, you know, our kids, 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 kids are, you know, or however long they're going to be able to do a blood test and go, okay, you're depressed. We're going to give you this one. We know it'll work. They don't know shit right now. They're finding out just by seeing how it impacts the people taking those things now. Yeah. It's, it's the dark ages, but it really is lighter than it was 40 years ago. Absolutely. And I mean, I feel so much pity and sympathy for people, you know, at the turn of the 1900s where there wasn't even support groups yet for addiction, let alone meds. I know. I know. And we are lucky to be in Los Angeles, to be in a place where um, finding sobriety is not, you are, you are not hardly ostracized or shamed no. for it. It's almost it, a badge of courage. Like, oh, I'm damaged. I'm an artist. Yeah. Well, and it's also more common than not, you yeah. know? Um, so, and I think that, the, the, you know, in what you do with the podcast in terms of uh, spreading awareness about this is so important because there are so many misconceptions out there about depression and about addiction. That's one of the things that led me to start the podcast was I went off my meds in um, 20, late 2010, early 2011 and uh, saw my depression creep back, but because it took five months for it to creep back in, I thought it was reality right. and I wanted to kill myself because I thought my life really is over. And one day I went, Oh my God, it's my depression. And I thought somebody needs to talk about how mental illness camouflages itself. Um, but in a way that isn't like Dr. Phil or people in Sedona talking about, <laughs> Mother crystals, Earth yeah. and crystals and that precious um, sacred space and, you know, that, right. that those buzzwords. Even though I think those people are well-intentioned, the language and the, the whole vibe about it, I just could never get into it because it just felt very kind of, I don't, I don't know, it just bugged me. 
Yeah, it's, um, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's good. It's good to start the conversation, but it is hard to find the conversation done in an, in a, in an approachable way, yeah. which is what the, the gift, I think, yeah. even saying the gift that you give yeah. Yeah. sounds like one of those Sedona yeah. people, but it, but it's true. Um, and I learned that in support groups. I didn't come up with that on my own. And by the way, Mark Maron's podcast was, I think, to what my podcast is to you, his podcast was to me in that he unapologetically talked about dark subjects. Right. And I thought that that would, maybe it was the comedian in me that thought, oh, no, you know, that's going to be a, a, a turnoff. It's going to be too much of a bummer. But, you know, one of the things that, is comforting to me sometimes is watching a documentary about a serial killer. Right. And I realize that for people who live in darkness, other darkness can become light. Absolutely. As long as it's done in a way that isn't gratuitous or exploitive. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's the theory behind the support groups and that's that feeling of, Oh my God, I'm not, you know, suffering with this secret all alone. You know, I, I, for years, uh, had a job giving sex and dating advice on a television show and I was giving people program. And what I, um, and what I realized was, um, that the, the thing people kept writing me about was I feel like a freak and I think I'm the only one. That was the same question I got over and over again. It, it just was disguised as different words okay. and that, and that it was everything I had learned through getting sober and through, um, finding healthy ways to live that, that, that gave me the ability to give sex and dating advice. Who mm -hmm. knew? So much of it springs from what, what we learn in, in support groups because we're forced to go deep to find out that sick prism we filter reality through, our fear, our resentment, our past experience, um, our arrogance. Right. You know, all, the, all those things. Um, but once you get that information, it's like a map where you can now avoid the parts of the forest that are dead ends. Right. Uh, or you hopefully... In an ideal world, you can avoid those parts. Oftentimes, I need to go to those parts and then be like reminded. Yeah, to avoid them. yeah. Because we, I think we have to live. We're so stubborn sometimes. We have to try ways that don't work to prove to ourselves, like right. a scientific experiment. We right. have to try every other way. Well, and I think also the human will is such that you can mine anyway. I will not change until I'm in so much pain and pain only comes from trying to do it the bad way over and over and over again. And then at one point the pain gets too much and I go, okay, willing to find another way. And a little pissed off about yeah. it. A Usually little... just sad. I go to sad. Yeah. Um, but okay, let's just sad and pissed are neighbors. They are, they really are. I mean, yeah, I was angry for the first 25 years of my life. I never got sad, just mad, real mad. And then I learned that sad was on the other side and I'm like, I kind of miss mad, <laughs> you know, at least you, I felt powerful. Um, yeah. I still get mad, trust me, but okay. I would love to just walk through the broad strokes of the podcast. So you started it when, uh, March of 2011. And it immediately caught on. How, what I, I know that it, it's a million downloads now. Um, a year? million downloads a year? It's actually now it's to uh, a couple. Uh, I think we're around five or six million total uh, in the two and a half years that, that we've done. It's about, about, um, about a quarter of a million a month. Um, so whatever, 
whatever that is, between 200,000 and 250,000 a, a, a month. That's because people download uh, the back episodes. Okay. Yeah. They, they find it and then they, they go back and listen to all of them. Yeah. And or got, some of them. It got, you know, it, and the Onion AV Club listed it as one of the 10 best podcasts in 2011. 2011. Yeah. Okay. So, and so how did people find it? How did it catch on? Uh, I went on other people's podcasts. Um, my friend Jimmy Pardo, having me on his, d- was a big, big reason um, for it kind of catching on immediately because he has a lot of listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, being on Marin, being on The Nerdist, um, those, I think those things, The Onion covering it from mm-hmm. like the eighth week on, Nathan Rabin, who used to be head writer there, um, was a huge champion of the podcast and um, really for me was that first validation in the media, in the media that I respect, that right. I immediately um, felt like I've arrived in right. terms of um, public because I can find any reason to shit on somebody liking something about me. They oh they don't know right. or, um, but I feel like the people that write for for the Onion they're pretty smart. Yeah. There's a cynicism there. Yeah. And for something as sincere as my podcast yeah. to be embraced by them, I feel like it must be pretty genuine for it to pass muster. Yeah with miraculous with them and in the new york times i mean it was hardly shoddy other coverage i mean yeah the atlantic uh did a really really nice article about that kyle dowling um uh, i'm so thankful to him for doing um doing that interview uh and getting uh, honestly getting feedback from peers of mine that i respect um that was huge paul f tompkins i remember him sending an email and just being like oh my god Paul F. Tompkins likes something that I'm doing. Jen Kirkman, um, Jimmy Pardo. Even though I know Jimmy likes me and loves me, I didn't think something like that would maybe be his his cup of tea. I don't think he's a he's a listener, but knowing that he um, respects something like that, and um, I don't know, I've just gotten such genuinely nice things from from people that it. And the and the the feedback I get from listeners, um, that is, I suppose, how they feel about my podcast. That feeling that they get, I get that in return when I get a nice email from them, or I meet mm. them in person, and we hug, and maybe we get a little teary, and then we, you know, let them let each other know what's going on with us, and. Um, I love like meeting a listener for coffee. And... Well, that happens. Oh yeah. So they email you and they say I'm in town or I live here and I yeah. would love to, love to meet. And you always go and meet them. I don't always, but I can if my schedule permits right. and I get the feeling like it might be um, an okay experience. Right. Right. Um, I, I've never, I've yet to have a bad experience with meeting somebody. And oftentimes the broad strokes, they'll share with me about their story. I'll say, Hey, let's record something. I can't promise it'll air. Right. I warn all my guests. I can't promise their episode will ever air. But, um, I, I, if I have a hunch, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and record. Cause I'd rather take that chance. Um, than to try to predict how it's going to go and never, 
never have that chance. And so have you not aired episodes with, yes, there's, with even guests that you've specifically pursued? Um, yes, there's there's been many that, that I haven't aired. Some I won't rule out that they'll air, but I try to air whatever is needed for the podcast that week, be it a subject that hasn't been talked about or an episode that's just so good it needs to go to the front of the line. I felt that way about Cameron Esposito's episode. Um, I recorded her only a couple of weeks ago, and I just couldn't wait for it to get out there because it was just such a great conversation, and she was so open and honest and funny, um, and I thought her story was important. Um, and she had like a breakthrough in the middle of the of wow. the interview where she got in touch with anger that had been buried about her childhood how many do you have in the bank um i've probably got about six months worth of episodes in the in the bank that's insane you yeah it is okay Okay. but i'm insane so under (laughs) understand that i i enjoy recording people it's not work for me so if somebody has a story that's interesting um or sounds interesting I can't wait to to go record them because it's you know being in support groups this is the food for our soul. Right. And I need to eat it. And so what when do you when does one drop? Is it every, every late Thursday night uh for those who live east of here it would be early Friday morning. Uh-huh. I suppose it's early Friday morning because it's usually after midnight for me. Right. So yeah, Fridays. And um and you don't do live ones. No, I did do um, a live, I recorded it live with a live audience in Portland. It was Karen Kilgariff. Great episode. Right, right. And that was so, I've never felt so safe and vulnerable on stage. I was a little nervous because I'd never been my non-stand-up persona on stage. And it was just so nice to feel that to have all those listeners in the in the room. Um, and and you build it, um, they, they were fans of yours from comedy, they were fans of the podcast. How did I think you... fans of the podcast, right. yeah, because it was a daytime uh, live recording at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, and I'm so grateful for the people that organized that for taking the chance to have something that isn't quote-unquote comedic. Comedy, yeah. Yeah, even though Karen had a lot of uh, Funny humor say, in right. it, um, it, it. It was... I'll remember it for the rest of my life because it was like, oh, I can do these. I can right. I can take this on the road. I don't know if I – it's not financially viable right now. I'll probably, I would probably just be covering my expenses to go do it. Um, I'm doing one in Toronto November 15th and 16th. I'm going to do a group recording of listeners on Friday night and then a live um, – podcast recording with a single guest on Saturday afternoon and we haven't figured out the guest yet but uh, I'm really look, looking forward to it well and in terms of, and, and there there's do, do you take donations and you showed me when I walked in here what what donors can get some pretty badass cool wood stuff oh thanks yes let's talk about that so um, so you have a PayPal thing where people can donate yes on the mental illness it's just a mental illness Pod? Uh, mentalpod.com. mentalpod.com. And they can either do a one-time PayPal donation or recurring monthly. And I love the recurring monthlies because it is a foundation that then I can go, okay, I can maybe extrapolate it to the point where I can 
go, well, maybe if the podcast keeps growing, I'll be yeah. able to support myself doing this. Yeah. Um, and you can also buy, uh, use our Amazon search portal, and then Amazon gives us a couple of nickels for um, when people buy stuff, and it doesn't cost them anything. Right. Um, and and I wanted to find a way to thank the monthly donors, and I thought about doing um, special episodes that only they could listen to, but one of the reasons I've shied away from doing that and having people pay for back episodes was I want... I feel like all of this stuff should be for free right? because I started it to, to spread the message right. and to limit the message to people that have money or donate. Um, seems counter to it. It seems yeah. counter to it. Um, but it does make me nervous sometimes that I'll never be get to the point where I can make this my full time gig. So one of the reasons, one of the ways I thought I might, incentivize incentivize or really just thank the monthly donors was would be to make cutting boards and stuff like that and raffle them raffle them off that only monthly donors or people who have transcribed an episode um could be eligible for and it's it's been very very gratifying to feel like i have a way to thank them other than with with words and those they are amazing pieces Aww, they really are thanks so and um what's I, what i think is spectacular about your site too is those forums are filled with people that was some of the best forums i found uh, about sort of medication and their, you know, and, and have I, you posted anything in no, there or just browsed? I'm not, I'm not a poster. I'm a lurker, <laughs> but, um, have you taken any of the surveys? No, yet? no, I'm not a survey taker really no? either. I fancy myself very busy. <laughs> um, but, but I have, I've enjoyed looking at them and I really, I think when you read the results on the podcast is great. Another thing that was super thrilling to me was having listened to the podcast so much and then going and interviewing Greg Barrett and realizing that he he was the one who says, well, you have a new intro now, I think. But, but he's the outro. At the at the end of it, oh, he says, uh, you know, everybody I know is, is so bizarrely, beautifully, beautifully fucked, up, fucked like, up in some weird way. I love it. Yeah. And then I always wonder who's the guy. I've never listened to the episode about the guy, someone else's teeth. But I know that voice. That's Murph. He was episode number four. He's a friend of mine from my support groups. And he has a very, very interesting checkered past who is one of the greatest example of how people can change i mean he was a very violent um uh, some would say you know asocial to the nth degree with the quote that you used in the intro was i used to keep a cup of teeth in a jar and you say your teeth you said no other people's teeth (laughs) what the the fuck are they talking about do i want to know i don't know yeah you should listen to that episode number four yeah number four and that that was voted one of the top 10 of that year of the first year 2011 how many episodes have there been so far uh 131 i just put a little mini one out um last night which is just me reading an article that article about co-narcissism and um we didn't even talk at all about dinner and a movie you were the host of it the co-host for eight years uh 16 16 years Yeah, but you got one of the what one of the numbers that divide into it (laughs) that was some like for me that was a really impressive math skill right there (laughs) that's nice um and you co-host you could have said 32 which would have been much more flattering i know i or 64 look at me math (laughs) genius what happens to me um and yeah and i know annabelle gerwich does my live show 
Oh, really? Yeah, uh, I have what's a, this live I have show this live do? show that has nothing to do with addiction um, or anything. It's what's it called, called? True Tales of Lust and Love. Many oh. people you know have done it. Janet Varney has done it. Um, what nights is it on? It's, well, it's, we've switched. We were at the Mint for uh, two, a year and a half, the second Saturday of every month. And now we are at M-Bar, the third Thursday of every month. And what I, time? It's at 8 and it's and randomly it's this coming Friday. Listeners don't listen. This is you'll have missed it. I'm so sorry. But that's a podcast as well. Um, but you Maybe would, you should be recording those absolutely. Yeah, they're great. And and I done, I've done an all guys one that Paul F. Tompkins did. And mm. it's been it, it's something that you know. Do they read or just tell it, a story? Half and half. Okay. And because I don't really, I, it's not that I don't care about it. It's because I didn't put that like must succeed with all my might and will and self control. It's to, it's been very successful. And those are yeah. the funniest things, the ones that you just don't I have know. any attachment to. I know. It, if only, if only it could, I could manage to have that same, you know, wearing my hopes for it like a loose garment. Because yes. th- th- that works so well. So well. It's that, you know, and I do think that that's, you know, we should close out pretty soon. But like, that's what alcoholism is about is this like, I will control mm-hmm. and I will make this happen and how ineffective that is. And the fact that it works every once in a while, I it's know. like the great <laughs> golf shot that keeps you coming back. <gasps> Thinking I'm going to break 80 or I'm going to, you know, right. break a hundred, whatever your, right. your thing is. Or it, for me, the, like every, it's the last couple of years, like those, that good night on cocaine, as opposed to the yes. 700 other really shitty ones. The worst hangovers ever. Uh, cocaine hangovers. Well, cocaine, it, the day after I was great. The day after the day after wanted to kill myself every time. Really? Yeah. I think so I'm, you didn't drink as much. As when you were, because I, I could I only, drink like a fish. Yeah, when I, would... I could do, do some drinking, but, but but you wouldn't get hung over. No, because what I would do, I would I would do coke first, and then I would use the um the uh, the what's it called Amstel Light and the vodka to come down, and then to come really down, I would just take like five at Ambien, and I think maybe Ambien was like a hangover killer. I don't know. I, I the hangovers weren't that bad. How many times did you do coke? Oh, that's not a countable number. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I have, no, I have no idea how many years I was holed up in my apartment alone doing it. Oh, I can't wait to have you as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I got, I got tales. Now, okay, one thing I do is I take a listener question, and this one seemed so good for you. Um, it is from at sax underscore oh nine oh nine, and he asks. How can a teenager who successfully completes treatment remain clean and sober after going home to functioning alcoholic parents? What's your take? How old is he? Who didn't say. And this is a hypothetical. This, he's not the teenager. He's just asking in general. I would suggest a two support groups. Yeah. One for his addictions and one for codependency. Well, and a, a support group for his parents. Yeah, but he can't control whether or not they're going to go right to that to that support group. Right, but if the parents are alcoholic, um, I think that that is probably fairly common. the The parents that say, "Okay, little Timmy's acting out, and you know, uh, we have enough money to go. Send, let's go send him off to wherever." And it, you know, and in fact, there's um, addictive behavior going on in the home. Mm-hmm. But what he has control over is how he handles that. You right. know what I mean? He he can't control 
what they're going to do. He, he, he can only control his reaction to them. And I think, uh, and his, and his desire to get loaded. And I think those two support groups that handle that would be the only thing he would have control over. It might make him even crazier to try to get them into support groups, to try to make them see that they're alcoholics. That, that can be one of the sickest things that, yeah, or but I actually meant a support group for them in terms of dealing with an alcoholic, not with their own alcoholism. Oh, so you're talking about the family dynamic, just not what he has control yeah, over. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in that, that they would probably realize their alcoholism. Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, mean, I, mis- I, I misunderstood. Well, and, and any parent who who is thinking about sending a kid to rehab do know that it is a family disease, that it doesn't just incubate in some random kid who then goes and acts out. Oftentimes the the child is reacting to what's going on, um, that the whole family has to heal. If the kid is a teenager, I think for that teenager to have any success, yeah. the whole family has to work And get rid of the notion that the more money you spend on a rehab, the better their chances are of getting sober. I think the inverse is actually quite true because the really expensive places often pamper and will enable that person's sense of entitlement because they don't want to lose that huge amount of money that that person is paying. Well, it's, I do just respectfully disagree just because, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got sober at promises, not the fancy one, Mm -hmm. but, but the, the ghetto promises as we called it. And, um, and so, so many of the high end rehabs in LA have the greatest addiction experts in the world working for them. And I think that they get, they get sort of tossed aside as, Oh, well, you know, all those LA rehabs, they just cater to celebrities and it's all about the massages. And that's just simply not true. I mean, some of the smartest people I know do the, work at those rehabs. And I, and that makes perfect sense to me. But the thing that I've heard from so many of my friends that have worked at these high end ones is that the people that don't respect the rules don't get kicked out. So I think if somebody is willing to follow the rules, right. that's great. But I think, like, I'm a big fan of rehabs like Cry Help, right. which has a zero tolerance policy for people that flagrantly disobey the the rules there. And I think it it's that... I think alcoholics need consequences. And I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but I think what made it the exception for you is it sounds like you were compliant when you went in there. You weren't going in there. I was very, very desperate and willing, but, but, um, but they do. I mean, these rehabs do actually kick out people. They do. Yeah. Because also you don't get your money back. If you spend $50,000 on that rehab and you disobey the rules and you get kicked out on day 10, there's no refund coming. So it's not like they're incentivized to keep you there. Because I think there are some. There are probably some. And those are the ones that I'm talking about. But there are very few. In my, I mean, I'm literally writing a story about this right now. There are two or three that we all who were kind of work around this world know, you know, if you don't want to do the work and you need to get like a wife or like... Like the press off your back, you go there, mm-hmm. but 98% of them, that's just not true. I have no idea. Yeah. Look, a ch- yeah. change was just made. An epiphany was had, if you will. Yeah, nice. <laughs> or he's just being nice. No, um, I'm not. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, th- this is great. This is fantastic. Uh, I've pe- really enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed it too. People can find, uh, we've given the website out, but let's give out the information again. Uh it's called the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and the website is mentalpod.com, and you can also find it through iTunes. It's in um, 
you can just search for it on iTunes and then make sure to click on the logo so the most recent episodes uh, come up. And you can also find it by going to the health category and then the sub category of self-help. And you're on Twitter, but you don't tweet a lot. Let's be honest. Uh, I, I tweet a fair amount. I don't tweet as myself. I tweet mental pod. Oh. Because I have uh, at Gil Martini, which I don't think I've touched in six months. Okay. And um, But the one I tweet almost uh, every day or every other day, and mostly it's related to the podcast, is at mental pod. Okay. So please follow me on that one because that one means more to me than the other one. Okay. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Paul. It really was a pleasure. Thanks, Anna. Okay. I'm going to enjoy that.